Yeah, you don't want to be the person who, like, doesn't give him the chocolate milk. It's like, sir, you don't have enough funds. It's like, do you know who I am? It's like, you don't have enough funds. So, hey, everybody, welcome to episode 149 of the More Than Just Code podcast. My name is Tim Mitra, and I'm in Toronto, Ontario, and I'm joined, as usual, by Jaime Lopez in Seattle, Washington. How's it going? And we also have Mark Rubin, now safely ensconced in his house in San Jose. <laughs> Hello. After an was... hour and 15 minute commute on a horrible freeway. <laughs> in the summertime, so it's probably a little bit warmer, too. Oh, it's, yeah, we've, we're having a pretty bad heat wave this week. It's been 90s to 100s all week long. I wow, really? If, I heard. Yeah, yeah. wonder if that's why the freeways would bad. I mean, it's pretty much every day this week, there have been at least two accidents on the freeway that slow down traffic on the way home. I wonder if it's because of the heat somehow. People aren't paying attention or, or they're yeah. falling asleep or whatever. I don't know. Well, I heard I heard the planes are grounded in uh, Arizona, I think. They're they're not flying them out like because it's just too hot to fly, apparently. Yeah, is that right? Hmm. Yeah, that's the smaller regional jets like Bombardier would make. Um, something as large as like an Airbus you know, A320 or a Boeing 737 will generally have enough um, thrust, especially because they'll have to use the longer runways. And I guess Arizona's Airports, some of their runways are not really long enough to given the heat conditions. And it's mm-hmm. not as if, like, if you're in, um, like, the Middle East, there will be, they call them, what is it, high and hot variants of these aircraft that are sort of made to take off in, in those kind of conditions. Well, you don't tend to buy those for sort of lower uh, elevation. Right, and, right. And even though it's hot in Arizona, it doesn't normally get that hot, right? So mm-hmm. I think that's why they ran into trouble. Hmm. Yeah, it's actually been... Um been weird seasonally here like um weirdness we had a tornado warning last weekend right i was telling tammy about that and she's like yikes you know so tell me global warming isn't a thing <laughs> at least tammy has like a like a shelter to go to because i guess that's sort of like a, a common occurrence in the area i'm guessing toronto doesn't get too many twisters at least not that we, i don't think i've ever had a twister in the city but we i think barry uh which again was what we were just talking about up uh, up north of uh toronto about 50 miles north of toronto i think or maybe more and it's gotta be more than that um they had a they had a tornado that wiped out like large swathes of communities. So Carol, I was talking to Carol about that the other day, and she sort of reminded me of the Barry Barry tornado that we had. Twister, anywho. All right, so hey, Hami, do we have some ask, ask MTJC follow up? We do, and this one's from friend of the show Jeffrey Fulton, who has provided a real wonderful video as follow up to our sort of question last episode about like. Can dog paws use multi-touch devices like an iPhone or an iPad? Is there enough capacitance there? And he shows a 10-second video of his, uh, I'm not sure what kind of dog it is, like a lab or something. Kind of a lab, yeah. He's uh, with like an iPad or iPad mini and showing that, yep, he can he can operate. You know, he's holding his dog's paw and then using the paw to manipulate the home screen and, and swipe back and forth with the, the poor little dog, or poor little dog here kind of wondering what the heck's going on. He doesn't look, <laughs> he's looking at me, he looks a little concerned. It's like, why is he doing this? <laughs> Um, But there should be follow-up to this follow-up because the other thing we mentioned on the episode was wondering if that paw could, in fact, be used for the Touch ID sensor and use exactly, exactly, yeah. So hopefully there's a follow-up to this follow-up. Yeah, there's an early video... 
it brings to mind two videos, but the, the first video I remember from when the iPad first came out was a cat swiping at, remember that piano, um, there's a piano from, oh, who were they? They made the Ocarina app too. Um, but it was a Smule, I think was the name of the company. And they made like a sort of crazy piano that kind of played in a big curl. Oh right? yeah, yeah, and yeah. The, yeah. I remember yeah, that. And, there, and there was a cat swiping at the screen and, and making the notes. And of course, you know, a cat will respond to like any kind of stimulus like that. And, and just, the cat just kept whacking away at this, uh, at this screen. Right. So, so uh, I think I knew, I think we knew that cap, uh, pets paws were could use capacitant touch. So we'll talk about that a little bit later too. Um, the other the other that came to mind was I remember seeing a, a baby uh, about the time about a year or two after the iPad came out, and so this like a little toddler sitting up, looking at a magazine and double tapping on the pictures in a paper magazine. Right, trying to trying to manipulate <laughs> it and move it because it yeah, it kind of yeah. looks the same, right? It's about the same. Yeah, well, shape to a baby size. Like, yeah, it's yeah, got yeah. big <laughs> images on it. That that makes sense. Yeah, I, I could see. That. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To dig that video up some somewhere. All right. So um, our friend of the show, Fouad, down in uh, I think he's down in Virginia or DC, somewhere around there. Um, he sent a, a link to us uh, on the Canadian room on our chat, our Slack channel, um, that Canada has now ruled that all new cell phones must be unlocked, and it goes further to say that we normally pay have to pay the the, the Bell or Rogers or whoever sells us our phones fifty dollars to unlock our phones, um, so that we can put you know, so we can go to another provider or, or, you know, go to Europe and, you know, put a European SIM in or something like that, or even to the States, right? Um, but the, the new ruling goes on to say that they can't charge us with legacy phones. Like if I, like I have two iPhones now that are under contract or one's actually free of contract. And so Canadians are rejoicing in the fact that we don't have to pay to have our phones unlocked. So do you guys in the States have to have, have to pay somebody to unlock your phone? Can you go to AT&T and say, unlock my phone? Mm, I'm trying to remember that that has changed over time. Like you, we ended up getting the number portability. That was a big deal years ago. Right. Yeah. And then I think you can pay to have it unlocked at the end of your contract. But now that contracts are going away and it's really more like month to month kind of thing. I'm trying to think, I'm trying to think how this works. I actually don't know. I've, I've not, I've not actually done that. I've bought devices that were already sort of yeah, pre unlocked and then they'll end up using, Oh yes. I remember this. Um, I didn't have it locked by AT&T in this case. So I bought an iPad, my current iPad air two, I think I bought it through the app store or uh, through Apple's uh, online store. And then, you know, it says, Oh, you, you know, set it up with a mobile network. It's like, Hmm, what should I do? And I looked online. It's like, oh, by the way, if you choose AT and T, they will lock what's supposed to be like this virtual SIM, and you, you can't really? do anything to it. Whereas T Mobile's was like, oh yeah, well, that's fine. If you want to use our network, use it. If not, don't. And that was cool. So uh, that was a few years ago, probably two or three years now. So I'm, I'm not sure how the rules have changed. But this is, this is really good for uh, for Canadians. Yeah, I don't think we have those virtual SIMs here because I know that when I've bought any devices, I you know I get to choose Rogers or Bell or whoever for free. But an Apple will like gladly give me a, a dummy a dummy sim and i just have to contact them active but we don't get like i think you do you guys get a sim in the ipad case like in the box when you get them or or they handed you hand you one or something it comes installed in the phone or in the ipad yeah and for whatever model it was that i bought i like it might have been like considered unlocked or something and then you could choose at startup time or i should say um setup time which network network you wanted to use and i remember reading online that at&t at the time in particular was if you chose their network it was locked to the network unless you later unlocked it um, right that sounds underhanded which, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. it sort of sounds i remember the controversy at the time it's like well 
that kind of defeats the purpose of this eSIM or virtual SIM. I, I forget what the, the thing is called. We'll have to look it up. Yeah, I mean, you pay the extra money to buy something from the Apple store directly because it's unlocked. Whereas if you buy it, like a, a, I bought Carol's phone recently through Rogers and it's subsidized. So basically you have a two-year contract on it and, you know, we didn't pay full price for it. But I had to send over a chunk of money to them. But uh, but yeah, I think we pay we pay for the phone through the through the service, right? So, and to follow up on this, this new phones being unlocked rule, or cell phones being unlocked rule, Carol just says, ah, oh, they'll just raise our rates. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I think I've heard that's what happened in the European Union where um, data roaming is now more standardized, where just, I think they're eventually not going to pay roaming fees. But then everybody said, well, yeah, but let's just because everybody else's, you know, bill went up by like two or three dollars to compensate. Yeah, so it yeah, sort of yeah. just peanut buttered it across the entire user base. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I don't know about you, but apparently Canada pays one of the highest rates in, in cell service. Um, you know, I'm not sure why. There you go. So the other piece of follow-up I have here is uh, part of my discussion with you guys about two-factor authentication that was in the after show. One of the things that, that was a mystery to me was every single device I have, I've had to go and, and it seems to have forgotten that I've ever used it before and wanted to do the two-factor authentication. And it would say, we're sending you a code. And then the code would just disappear into the ether and I would never get the code. And so I had to go, if if a pop-up said, you know, that had a choice, it said, you don't have, did you get a code? It can say I could choose to click on. I didn't get a code, and then choose my cell phone, and it would send the verification code to my phone. Right? Do you follow me? Did that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So I went to a website the other day where I had to use my Apple ID to verify my account, and so I, it sort of said your, your account's not working. You have to do the two FA thing. So I went through that process, and they didn't offer after unsuccessfully sending me that again this this code that disappears into I know I don't know where. They didn't offer a, ch a second choice to send you know to resend the, the the verification code to my cell phone. So I worked with the, their tech support guy on on back and forth on it, and then eventually. Actually, I, I went to I discovered on the internet, and I put a link in the show notes that you, if you have a trusted device and you go into your Apple ID, this is on iOS 10, and if you click on your your ID at the top of the settings page, and there's a um, prompt there called um, password and security, and at the bottom of that page is get for verification code. So whatever service you're signing up for at that moment in time, if you go into a trusted device and you hit that button at the bottom, it will send you a code like like the Google one does, right? That, that will send you that that. That is, in fact, the, the verification code that you're, that it's waiting for at that point in time. So I was able to register through that website by getting the code on my phone by retrieving it with this get for verification code function, um, which is similar to, like I said, I, I never had a problem with Google's because I've been using two-factor two authentication on Google for years. Um, you know, anytime you go to a new machine and you try and log into the Google Docs or whatever, uh, it sends a text message to my phone and, and I just punch in the appropriate G code, I guess they call it, um, and away you go. So, so that's how people can um, get the verification code if they didn't receive one via text or uh, I think Greg said they come to him as notifications on a Mac one of his Macs what do you guys uh, what's your experience with the, the codes I've never had any problem with them um, <laughs> I feel for you you know with with all the issues that you've gone through but it just kind of works for me when they say they're going to yeah. send me code I get a code and I type it in and keep going so, but how does it manifest does it show up as a notification on the Mac or, or on your on your phone it's, or? It's, al it's almost too much I get one on pretty much every device that I have associated with the oh account. really 
Yeah, wow. get one on the Mac, or get one on the phone, get one on the iPad. Yeah, I don't know. Something yeah. weird about it. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I think I've used both the SMS route and the sends a push notification to a trusted device. I don't think I've seen, which has a like a code in it. I don't think I've seen the one that they show here in the support article that has the, oh, looks like another device is trying to add you know, iCloud. Yeah. You know, allow yeah. this. I don't think I've actually seen that one myself because I, I don't think I've selected that option. Yeah, I mean, it works on, it did the same thing on my Apple TV and my iPads and Carol's phones and Carol's Mac. And I have two Macs sitting on my desk right now. And they've all had to go through it. I haven't tried my server behind me, but uh, that'll be interesting because I don't think that one's running. Um, I think it's running 10. It's not running. What's 10.8? That's uh, Snow was, Leopard or something? It's old. It's it not. I don't mine. think it's running. It it's not, yeah, no, it'd be Mountain yeah. Lion. No, it's it's not running. It's not running Yosemite. I never updated it to Yosemite. So, I mean, the only choice I have now is to update it to uh, Sierra, right? So, yeah. so that'll be fun. I've seen both of these kind of notifications. I've seen the one with the map as well as the right. one that's just an SMS. I don't remember ever choosing using one though so it just seems to send whichever one is handy at the moment i guess i don't know yeah well how many mm. how many devices do you have all together like in your in your um, life well i got a lot but uh on one given icloud account i think three is the most three active ones right right mm. at least yeah, that, i have my own that i'd have together in one spot Four for me, I think. iPhone, yeah. iPad, MacBook Pro, Mac Mini. Yeah, yeah, four. See, I have four on my desk, and then I got two more, two more upstairs. And then the the, the sad story is, I've, I've told you guys before about my iPhone 3GS that I use for checking the weather and occasional Twitter and Slack and that kind of stuff, uh, and the occasional websites. Um, it because it doesn't, it's iOS six, so it doesn't support two factor authentication. I keep every time I reboot it, I get this message about how photos can't be accessed. Mm, <laughs> so, right. Yeah. So Apple, please like follow my. Microsoft's lead and update my ancient my ancient OS here. <laughs> Tim, putting your old 3GS or original iPhone on there is just part of some botnet by now for sure. Like, <laughs> <laughs> iOS 2 can't handle all the, the cool new viruses and worms that are yeah. out there. No, no, no. I think the oldest device I have runs iOS 3, right? So, and that's the, uh, the Gorilla Back iPhone, which I haven't, haven't turned on very often. <laughs> it's funny, you know, it used to be, I used to have to jailbreak that to get it to work, but, uh, I think Apple must have updated, updated the operating system at some point where it just, it just, it just opens. <laughs> so that's my botnet phone. Okay. Moving on. Moving on. So, Jaime, you have something in, uh, from Google to tell us about? Yeah. So we've been talking about Core ML and the Vision Framework and a lot of cool stuff that came out for iOS 11 regarding sort of AI, machine learning, computer vision type stuff. Well, it would, we'd be sort of remiss to not mention the fact that Google has its TensorFlow and th that does something very similar. And they also had their uh, TensorFlow Lite or mobile. I forget exactly what they called it at Google I.O. this past summer or Matt, uh, past May. And their research team has released something that should sound really familiar, right? So we've talked about CoreML and how great it is that Apple has these pre-trained models that do um, image recognition and classification type stuff. But Google has really that as well um, in their TensorFlow format. So you can go to this web page and download these various dis different models that are specifically tuned to run in a constrained environment like a mobile phone. So it's uh, making different trade-offs than it would for the like server-side TensorFlow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think I mentioned, uh, we were talking about it before the show, so I'm not sure if it'll be mentioned twice <laughs> here, but in the, uh, I believe it was CoreML in depth, they talked about the CoreML tools that they've added, which is a Python script that lets you download commonly used, you know, ready-made models and you drag them, you bring them down to your Mac and you run a, this Python script on them and it converts them into, converts the model into a core ML model and then you can pop it in there. And they mentioned TensorFlow as one of the examples of um, models that you could use. So I think it's kind of and Mark can add 
something to this. This there's more. I mean, it's kind of a. It's kind of a. I don't want to say. I, don't, I guess it's an open standard or something like that, or it's, no, no, it's easily convertible. Yeah, they just convert it. So so Coromel comes sort of out of the box, if you will, with four open source models that are that are in the in the Coromel framework uh, format, and those are the ones that are on the the uh, Coromel page in, in Apple's documentation. So you can just take those and drag and drop right into Xcode, and and you're good to go. You're ready to go. But if you want to use a different model, then you have to convert the format, and that's what these Python tools is uh, can do. It, in in theory, they can take uh, really any model that you might have, uh, and you could use these tools to to convert them into the Coromel format. So you could take some other model that is your own proprietary model, if you wanted, or or a different open source model that isn't supported right now by Coromel and convert it into the Coromel format, and then you can drag and drop that in. So one of the formats that these tools support is a TensorFlow. So with these tools, you can convert from TensorFlow to Coromel very easily. Yeah, just looking at my download folder, I think I have the video here. Coromel in depth. Yeah, here it is. The speaker on on that uh, thing talked about Cafe, Keras, mm-hmm. XGBoost, Lib, LibSVM, and something Learn uh, as the examples that they use to uh, as, as easily compatible and extendable in that section of the, the Coromel in depth if you want to see more about the Core ML tools that they've provided. Yeah, Cafe sounds familiar. Is that the one from Facebook? You're asking the wrong guy. Mark? <laughs> I, I don't know if that's a Facebook one, but I know it is one of the open source standards that are out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really What's cool to name? see that these work. Sorry? What's your dog's name again? <laughs> My dog's name is Poyo. Poyo, okay, right, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> he's, he's, <laughs> yes, like chicken, but we, we anglicized it to be spelled like yo-yo, but with a P, yeah. so that he wouldn't become polo or polio uh, mm. when, when read off of, like, you know, like at the vet or other, uh, like the dog right, right. or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, in any case, it, it's great to hear that these tools are, um, even if they're not directly compatible, they are convertible. Um, I think prior to the show, we talked about like, well, you know, everything supports PDF and that's great. But, you know, I was concerned that it might be like, you know, Word 97 versus Lotus Notes, like incompatibility. And it sounds like it's a little bit more like you can convert images from like JPEG to GIF to Ping to whatever, the, the new um, HVEC, what, what was the one, the new one that came out in iOS 11, right? Like the, the new ones where they are the H- new, H-E-I-F, yeah. is that what it is? Something like that. Yeah, I got to get yeah. used to the, the acronym. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. It's it's actually even, in this case, it's actually even simpler than that, because really all a neural network model is, is a, conceptually, there's there's the concept of how many nodes are in there and how many connections between the nodes are there and how are they connected. Uh, and then for each connection and each node, there's a weighting factor. So really to convert from one model to another model, it, it's just a matter of changing those weighting factors. So all you need to make a model that's importable is a way of representing in some kind of efficient way, what all of these weighting factors are and coefficients are. So it's, it's there's not too much more to it than that. I mean, the magic is in how you know how you set up the the uh, the different nodes and how you connect the different nodes and and then how do you train it to get out all those coefficients? And that's the hard part is is getting all those coefficients. But once you've got them, it's just a list of numbers in some kind of matrix. So 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 converting from one format to the other is really not that uh, big of a thing. So it's 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 good that they've got all the tools. But even if they didn't have the tools, somebody would have come up with the tools before too long. It would have been pretty easy to do it. Right, right. Yeah, it's kind of like in the world of 3D modeling where, you know, you can have a, there's a 3D model file in a certain format and most of them are convertible from one to the other. And so if you can, you can use Google SketchUp to to create a, uh, create a 3D model and you can export it to like a steel file STL, which is what's used for 3D printers and that kind of stuff. So I think it's the same thing. Like the math is there and it's just a matter of converting it from one format to another. So the other question I have, so they, so we, 
we keep calling this AI. Is this, I know this isn't like the Turing test AI, but so is this actually artificial intelligence that it's using these mathematical patterns or coefficients, I guess you call them, um, to identify objects or recognize flowers or see whether you're happy or sad, that kind of thing? Well, it is AI in the sense of the Turing test uh, to some degree. Um, obviously, these things can't pass the Turing test. They're not nearly uh, sophisticated enough to do that. But but it is conceptually the same thing. That yeah, if you know, it's it's a it's a mathematical system that has state that holds state in such a way that it can it can learn. Uh, and right. you know, how does something learn? Well, really, what learning is is by you know you adjust the parameters so that for any so that it can predict things based on certain sets of input, you get a certain set of output. So. So the analogy to the Turing test is Turing test says that you know if, if you if this thing is inside a black box somewhere uh, and you interact with it in some way you, there's no way to tell whether that's a machine or, or a human right 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 uh, okay. so so this thing well if you can come up with a sophisticated enough model that for whatever input you give it uh, it predicts the same output that a human would predict then right. in some sense yeah it's passed in a limited way the, the Turing test so it it is the same it is the same thing so I guess conceptually it's sort of how how we recognize faces and we know what a how we recognize objects and how we learn symbols and words and things like that in our own brains, right? Well, um, yeah, that's kind of where it gets interesting is is um, a neural network is a type of mathematical model that's specifically modeled after the way the brain works. Uh, where you have these oh, nodes, okay. where yeah. you have these nodes that are connected to each other, and uh, the nodes are analogous to neurons, where signals come in, and if the signal is strong enough, it will can turn on or off that neuron, and then right, propagates yeah. the signal down. That's how the brain works, and these neural, neural networks work pretty much exactly the same way. Now, if you take another step back and say, "Well, wait a minute, how does that really work? How does a human brain really learn based on just that?" And by extension, how then does a neural network really learn based on just that? Well, I don't think anyone really knows yet. <laughs> no one has a really, yeah, really no, good no. answer to, to why any of this works. But the amazing thing is it, it works spectacularly well. It really works well at learning these things. So it's pretty likely that, that these mathematical models that we have are working in the same way as the brain in some way. We just don't know exactly how that is. Right, right. So we don't know how the brain is working. We don't know how the, the core ML stuff is working. Both. Okay. So and just a question about the models type. I, I, I think I understand a bit about the model. So like, like in this Google doc that um, Jaime's posted, there's an object detection model, the fine-grained classification model, a face attribute model, and landscape re- landmark recognition model. So does yep. that mean that these, you you have to build an app for your specific purpose or can all of the, can, is there like one Uber uh, model that can do all of these things at once? So so there, it, it, the, if you use a neural network, that's what makes it interesting is it is all one big thing. It's all the same sort of. It's just a bunch of neurons connected to each other. And in, in the neural network, they're not actual neurons, they're these nodes. They're connected to each other in a certain pattern, and they have certain settings that say, uh, this neuron will turn on if the input signal is greater than some threshold value or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it won't if it if it's not high enough. So so essentially how these things work. So an image recognizer is basically just, it's, well, it's a little bit more complicated than this, but you can simply, uh, simply think of it as, say you have, uh, for every pixel, you have a box. Let's say it's a you know it's a four by four box to make it simple, and so that means there's four times four is is sixteen different 
uh, pixels in this box, which be and each one of those can be either on or off, right? So that means there's two to the power of sixteen possible states right. for this box, possible mm-hmm. ways that this is in. Okay, so if you then take that thing and and uh, the the pixels are, are a portion of an image, right? So if you take this, if you take thousands, and thousands, millions of images and figure out which of the two to the sixteen states is turn that the four by four box is in for that particular image, then you've kind of learned something about that image, and you've and and when you have enough of these four by four blocks, or they're not really four by four, but enough of these blocks that are sort of in parallel to each other, uh, then then you can find common patterns in the larger images, and that's where it gets a little bit mysterious because because the computer can figure out that having you know you know state number four thousand eight hundred and thirty three over here in the corner, and then state number six thousand two hundred and twelve over there in the other corner means that's likely to be a cat. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody knows really how it works. I mean, it, it just kind of works um, because it's wow. just enough. There's enough degrees of freedom that it, as long as you have enough data, uh, you can you can make these kind of inferences. It's it's a it's a really amazing thing that it works at all, but it does. It works incredibly well. Yeah, and and Tim, like I guess two of the things I heard you ask. One was, uh, is there like one thing that does them all? Like even the human brain itself, although we think of it as one entity, it really has a lot of specialization inside, right? You can point right, to yeah. like this part of the brain deals with sound and this completely other different one deals with vision and, and all these other bits that, that make up our brain. So even there, there's specialization where, you know, presumably our, our brain is running many, many models at once and learns over time how to deal with comparing and synthesizing that data. Sure. Um, and in terms of like whether this is AI, like it's 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 not Skynet level, it's not HAL 9000 <laughs> level. It, it really feels like we're at that beginning where like we've discovered that atoms and molecules exist and like, oh, wh- what are the implications of this? I don't know. Well, what can we do with it? Right. Or we've created the like there's a big difference in terms of sophistication between, oh, look, we have an electronic transistor versus the billions in, in all the different interconnections of like system mm-hmm. on chips that Intel might produce. Right. Like that level of sophistication can grow from these basic building blocks that we're still sort of getting off the ground at the moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but what I think what I was asking though was if, I, if I'm building an iOS app today and I want to recognize flowers, I have to get the flower recognizing model or... Um... Okay, yeah. So, so a model consists of two two general components. One is the uh, the structure or the architecture of the network. And, and we're sort of limiting ourselves to neural networks here, but but it, it also applies to other stuff. But uh, there's other types of, of these systems other than neural networks. But so, so the structure might mean you have, well, okay, I've got, uh, you know, 50 neurons and then a whole another layer feeding into those 50 neurons of, you know, 200 neurons and then another layer feeding into that of six neurons and then another layer feeding into that of what Seven neurons, uh, and then in each of those layers, there's a set of coefficients. The numbers that are first the the required trigger strengths to turn on each of those neurons, uh, and then the multiplication factors going from one to the next of, of the signal. Because one you know one neuron can have more of an effect on a neuron in its future path than some other neuron that also feeds into the future path of the, the same neuron. That makes sense. Probably didn't. Uh, but uh, <laughs> let's okay. Let's make it much. 
simple. Say you have two inputs and two outputs. Okay. And then, so, so, uh, the, the, each of the two inputs in the simplest kind of thing, each of the two input neurons will each have an input into the two output neurons. Right. So, but one of the two inputs might have more of an effect on output neuron number one than input neuron number two has on output neuron number one. So, so that means that input neuron number one would have a higher strength feeding into input neuron number one, then input neuron, I'm sorry, output neuron number one, then input neuron number two. So so the relative amount, the, the relative effect each of the inputs has on the output is one set of two numbers in this case. Right, okay. Okay, and it's because there's yep. two inputs. But mm-hmm. then there's two Then there's two outputs. So the, each of these two inputs also has a relative effect on the other output. So that means there, there's, there's two strengths for the first output and two strengths for the second output. So that's four numbers right there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then each of the outputs needs a trigger of how strong does the total input need to be to turn on. Oh, I see. Right. So yeah. that's two more numbers. So that's six. So you already need six coefficients just for this very simple architecture of, of these these four neurons. Uh, and that's not enough to learn anything, of course. And and you also right, need right. things called hidden layers too, which are uh, layers that, that are kind of in the middle and not exposed to the outside world. But 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 uh, but fundamentally, you just you, you create all these layers and the more layers and the more neurons in each layer you have, the more capability of learning something you have, you have because you have more degrees of freedom. You have more possible states for right. the whole thing yep. to be in. So, so it's a uh, yeah. There's there's more ways to represent it. The, the problem is though, you can have too many numbers, and then you can never learn a unique answer. So, so the balance is coming up with a structure or an architecture that has enough layers and enough nodes to learn what you want to learn without having too many layers, so that you or, or nodes, so that either you can't learn or you can't learn uniquely. There might be more than one solution for the same thing. Uh, that's equally good. Mm-hmm. So so first you need to come up with an architecture and then you have to train it to get all of those all those numbers. And then when you get both of those things, then you can then you have a model. So so when you download one of these models, it will it will be the set of numbers for a specific architecture or for a specific right. structure. Or task, yeah. Yeah. Not for well Well I, I don't mean task. Not necessarily yeah. for task. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. 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 It's it's better for categorization than facial recognition, for instance, right? Or don't answer that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Anything else about this yeah. Google article, Jaime? No, but it, it, a lot of this talk sort of makes me think of, remember that scene from Star Trek, the movie, or Star Trek 4, I should say, in the movie series? The uh, Voyage spo- Home. Yeah, spoilers for a movie from the 80s. Um, uh, Spock has been resurrected and they're running him through this test uh, to sort of see, like, you know, is, is he fine, even though he has, like, a new body? And he's answering all of these questions about these mathematical formulas and these chemical formulas and the historical trivia. And then the final question was, how do you feel? And that's where he gets tripped up on. That's sort of what makes <laughs> right, me think right. that we're doing with these machines, uh, getting back to like the Turing test thing of like, we can do, you know, oh yeah, this is a bunny and this is a hot dog. This is a fish, you know, this is uh, Jeff Bezos from, from Amazon. And then asking him like, well, how do you feel? It is one of those things that, that it, it reminds me a lot of. Right, right. That's when you cool. get the, that does not compute and the computer explodes and every other Star Trek episode. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, wasn't yeah. number four the one with the whales, by the way? It was indeed yes, the one with the yes. whales. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But Spock had just been resurrected from the Genesis planet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right.
So last night, I don't know if you guys saw it on Facebook Live from the Computer History Museum. Um, they had a special talk with uh, four people. The first talk was three engineers who worked on the original iPhone, and the, the second half of the talk was Scott Forstall from Apple. And um, so, and this is the first time Scott's talked uh, publicly since leaving Apple. Um, so anyway, so it was broken up into two parts. The first part was um, with Hugo Fines, who was a, a hardware engineer, and Nitan Ganarada. Uh, and Scott Hertz, who um, were software engineers, I believe, or uh, Natan may have been a, uh, a manager type guy as well. But it was it was a fascinating talk. If you're into, if you're interested at all, I mean, like to me, it was like it's kind of almost like a required listening because we we're all here at this point in time because of the iPhone, and these are the guys who were developing it back in you know 20, uh, 2005, 2006, and that kind of stuff. And um, some fascinating stories about how they came up with the hardware concepts, and uh, you know. Scott Hertz was talking about writing some of the software for it and how how and why they decided to have um, uh, web uh, as part of iOS, um, you know, web like a web view kind of thing. Um, that, did you watch, so Jaime, you watched a little bit of it or what did you catch? Yeah, I only saw about 20 minutes probably when they were talking about, um, what was it specifically? I think it was going into the, the keynote where... <laughs> Sorry, my dog is barking. Let me give that a little bit of a time. It's starting to cool down. One sec. Oh, I thought he was done. One sec. Oh, I see his mortal enemy has parked right in front of her house. That is the uh, UPS truck. He hates those. I'm with him. Can we? Oh my gosh, it's so annoying. I hope that UPS driver leaves pretty soon. You see if there's any article. Oh, wait, it's a delivery here. I thought it was for the neighbor. One sec. <laughs> is it pizza? <laughs> Somebody's come up with a, 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 hook, a special hook you can put on, on top of your AirPods to keep them in your ears. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah. I guess some people have... Uh, yeah, no, I, uh, I can't I can't wear them in my ears. Yeah. Really? The AirPods? Yeah. None of, none of the uh, the in-ear ones fit in my ears. Hmm. But I, like to, I like to use these um, noise-reducing ones anyway, the big Bose ones, so they, they cover your ears completely. Are they over over ears? Yeah. Yep, yep. I mean, I don't, I don't commute on a subway or any of that, so they don't need to be super portable for me. You have to be able, you have to be able to hear what people are uh, doing around you too, right? So yeah, a little bit at least. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, no wonder he was so mad. They, you know, they were I- invading his space by coming to the door. That's why he right. was flipping yeah. out. <laughs> yeah, protecting uh, you, man. So I saw about twenty minutes out of the total two hours, and at that time they were talking about the keynote where the iPhone was revealed, and uh, I think a little bit of the stuff they were talking about were, oh, you know, some of these things work together, these other ones didn't. They were kind of praying that it wouldn't crash on the script and, and also right, hoping yeah. that Steve wouldn't go off the script into heaven only knows if it was going to work at all sort of thing. And that was kind of interesting to sort of hear. Like I've, I've heard the story sort of second and third hand through biographers and everything, but hearing it from them themselves was, was kind of a nice little treat. Yeah. And Hugo Fines, isn't he the guy who who did the Nest products from Nest? Let me just quickly Google him. I thought he was. Oh, possibly. I mean, uh, I know Tony Fidel's name in, in relationship between the iPod and, and the Nest. And it wouldn't surprise me if he brought a few people over from Apple that he knew. Oh, really? Okay. So that Tony Fidel was the guy, the leader of the Nest project or? Um, what, what was his title? Um, really like CEO of, uh, of Nest when it was know. independent before it got purchased by Google? I think so. Yeah. 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 Hmm. yeah Tim, did you watch a substantial portion of it? What did you get I did. I watched, I watched a good portion, probably half an hour of the, um, of the three guys here. I'm just reading about uh, Hugo Fines. Um, it doesn't say anything specifically about Nest. Um, yeah, but he left in 2006, which is just, didn't it get released in 2007? Hmm. Anyway, yeah, so 
it was interesting. He, uh, Scott Hertz was talking about, they asked him about, you know, what was it like? Did, was Steve around at all? Did you, you know, was he hovering around, you know, trolling the, the development? And he sort of said, yeah, you know, occasionally they would like try and put some pressure on him and they kept coming to him like and saying, oh, would be really nice if we could have this feature or that feature or whatever. And, um, and somebody sort of said to him at one point, you know, uh, Mr. Jo- you know, Steve would like to see this thing. And, and he just sort of said, uh, he's typing away furiously at his keyboard. He goes, he'll see it when it's ready kind of thing. Right. And then, then he realized, oh, what have I just said? And he looked around and of course, Steve wasn't there in the room and, but the marketing guy was, and he went out the door and then Steve stuck his head in the door and, and, and said, oh, that's okay. We'll wait for it when it's ready. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but the, the Scott Forstall in- interview was interesting. Um, it started out talking about some of his, his current activities, you know, pr- producing Broadway plays and scuba diving and stuff like that and taking pictures of a shark trying to eat his brother's leg and things like that. But um, so they, he talked a lot about working with Steve because he started, he was an, uh, an intern at Next, or sorry, intern at Microsoft in, um, in, at, at university time, right? And then he went, it was choice of going to Microsoft or going to, to um, Next, right? Um, and he joked about the fact that, you know, he, Microsoft who had this established, you know, background and, and money and things like that, and, and Nest who had no money and no customers, right? So, uh, but he joined the Next team and there was a lot of um, uh, great work he did there. And of course he worked, got to work with Steve and all that kind of stuff. And, and uh, so there was some questions about, some answers he gave about, I'm really encouraging people to watch this because um, there was uh, some talk about what Steve was like as a person. You know, he apparently you know, really helped out Scott personally in some issues and things like that. But um, he had some great talk about, like he was talking about the Rhapsody uh, being next step on a Mac. But the issue, the reason why Rhapsody didn't fly is because they couldn't support all the established applications already, which, you know, we had to have Mac OS X was basically ne- next step with a bit of foundation and other things, I guess, in there. Um, they came up with Carbon, he said, to... Uh, give the compatibility between the new new operating system and the classic operating system so that you could run your classic apps. And then they came up, so that was Carbon, and the other one is Cocoa, which eventually became Cocoa Touch, um, is the sort of one where you could write new applications, you know, using the new systems and new frameworks and things like that, right? So uh, it was a really good talk. I mean, um, did you see, you didn't see any of the uh, forestall piece, Jaime? I think I might have seen a handful of minutes because they took a, what, five, ten minute break in between? Was yeah, it was like quite, a- quite a long break between there, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, I was pretty busy that night. So it's great that we've uh, got the link here in the show notes uh, for those of you driving home, of course, and we can sort of watch that and catch up on that. I, I do think it's it's something to check out, um, you know, maybe over a series of lunches or over dinner or something, just or if you've got some free time, just because I, I really do love the history part of our industry where you can sort of mm-hmm. get reinvigorated by saying like, wow, look how far we've come with this sort of thing. Um, went to the Living Living Computer History Museum. I forget what the name of the museum is here in Seattle. And they had the uh, several exhibits, one of which was for Apple's products through the years. And they had, you know, an Apple II and an Apple One, a few other things. And you can look at these and say, wow, um, there are even the most trivial apps on my iPhone right now. Like you just, you know, fired up Xcode, submitted it and called it good that would not fit on this entire device's capability. Like how far along have we come? And then seeing other re- sort of related exhibits, you know, we're talking about this whole AR kit sort of thing going on with iOS 11. I was like, well, I'm seeing these headsets for VR um, from the 90s that were like, where are this backpack and this huge <laughs> monitor on your head, which has not only yeah. the front part, but also this like back part that juts out instead of, oh, just hold up my phone and oh, look at these wonderful things I've got, right? There's a monkey jumping up and down on my TV. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. The VR was, was was really crazy back in the, I guess, the 90s is when it first started, right? Um, yeah, so I found a link here just uh, from 9to5Mac. They were, I guess they were live blogging from from the talk, so just looking at some highlights here. Yeah, oh, yeah, right. He said, uh, finds it saying that Jobs once asked him to move the CPU a couple of millimeters to make the PCB more symmetrical. 
So, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I did actually hear that part about, like, you know, that attention to detail, right? There's that, that famous thing about, like, oh, if you're, like, a really good carpenter, you're not going to put the cheap plywood on the back of the, the dresser that nobody sees. You're going to make it out of wonderful, beautiful wood. It does sound like a very Jobsian thing to be like, well, can we make this internal design symmetrical? Not for, like, weight and balance reasons, but probably because it will look really good when we show, look how perfect and clean this thing is on the inside, too, right? Top to bottom, this whole product is, is quality. Um, I, I think in that one, they said, well, you know, he'd asked, you know, just because why not, you know, ask if it's possible to do. They said, no. I said, all right, well, that's fine. Yeah, another interesting one was about the, so I guess, the the announcement of Apple and Next getting together um, because they asked Scott what he sort of knew about, you know, the rumors or whatever was being talked about. And uh, um, and he was talking about how the iPhone came to be. And he said that it was, it, I think we've talked about this before. Or we've, I think it's sort of known known that they were actually working on a, a tablet project at the beginning. Um, and uh, he talks about this guy that Microsoft, that wasn't Bill Gates, but this guy at Microsoft that Steve really hated. And every time he saw him, he'd come back really angry. Um, but yeah, he they at one point they saw a demo of uh, multi-touch uh, like a, on a smaller device and they had like a button that said, you know, calling Jaime, for instance. Even though it didn't really call anybody, that kind of sparked them to think, okay, well, maybe we need to take this tablet thing and just make it smaller. Um, and, and that's how the iPhone was sort of born because they were also thinking about at the time, and I remember this as a reseller, um, I never understood why. Uh, when the iPod first came out, I mean, I was selling Macs and, and they sort of said, my, my rep at Apple said, you know, why don't you sell iPods? And I thought, well, why would I, right? Because I'm a Mac guy and they were selling Macs. And all along the time that I was a reseller, there was always this sort of, you know, if you want to get into this other program, if I want to sell Apple TV, for instance, the original Apple TVs, the big ones, I would have to become an iPod reseller. And then, so Scott was saying in, in, the, uh, in this talk that at the time that they were coming out with the iPhone or developing the iPhone, the iPod was half of their sales, right? So already, the, you know, the music device was was quite big and they were thinking about what would replace the iPod. So all those sort of ideas converged together and that's how they ended up uh, coming out with the iPhone as, as a thing, right? Cool, cool. Yeah, I've heard the, I've heard the, the, the story. I guess it was fairly recent. It's probably related to this talk about hating that one guy at, at Microsoft who had said that they had basically solved computing with their, yes, their tablet yeah, yeah. and stylus stuff. And I don't know, <laughs> I guess the, the point of the story is like sometimes bitterness and pettiness can lead you to great things if, you, <laughs> if it drives you as the motivation behind what you're doing. Yeah, it's funny. I, I don't know if you guys have ever read um, Accidental Empires book by, um, I forgot his name now, uh, but a Accidental Empires uh, and the subtitle is How the Boys of Silicon Valley Made Their Millions But Still Can't Get a Date. Um, <laughs> and he did a, a TV show called uh, Triumph of the Nerds. He was an Apple employee at one point. I can't remember his name. Uh, it's killing me. Anyway, I'll put a link in the show notes to the book and the link in the show notes to the uh, to the to the discs, uh, which I had a real hard time finding. It was an old TV show, really bad graphics, like last week. But um, I, there was a story about one of the things, that the analogies in there was that um, you know Bill Gates was the kind of guy who would stand in line at a at a checkout in order to say to use a coupon for a dollar off a tub of ice cream. Right? And and the sort of idea was that you know the guy the guy was so conscious about you know what what value was that he would never let never leave money on the table. But um, in a similar way, uh, Scott was saying that Steve always insisted on paying lunch at the Apple cafeteria, and it always made you know Scott feel uncomfortable. Like no no I can take care of myself and no. 
Steve's like, no, 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 I'll pay for it. I'll pay for it. Right. And so he would stand, he would wait for him at, at the, at the cash cashier. And while Scott was getting his, his meal and he was always like afraid of getting like something that took a long time to cook or whatever. So he gets up to the cashier and then of course Steve would badge in, he used, your, used to use your badges. So he would badge in and pay for the meal. Right. And, uh, and so Scott one time said, you know, I, I really appreciate you buying the meal, but I, you know, I, you know, you pay me well, I can, I can pay for my own meals. And Steve said, I only get paid a dollar a year. So I don't know who's paying for all these meals. <laughs> so here's a multi-billionaire scamming Apple. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to be the person who like doesn't give him the chocolate milk. It's like, sir, right. you don't have enough funds. It's like, do you know who I am? It's like, you don't have enough funds. Yeah, yeah. Well, have you ever seen the the uh, video of Darth Vader at the cantina? It's like a Lego. It's actually a, um, oh, what's it? Yeah, Eddie, it's an Eddie, Eddie Izzard. Yeah, Eddie, Eddie Izzard. Izzard bit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They, there's somebody, somebody did it up with Lego and, and all about Darth Vader at the cantina and, and how the, the, the kid serving him the food has no idea that he's even on the Death Star. Never mind who Darth Vader is. <laughs> anyway, yeah. yeah, it was a good, it was a great talk. So, I mean, seriously, if you're, if you have any inkling at all about the iPhone or history of it and how it developed, I mean, like, and I guess this is the, I think you were joking yesterday on, on Twitter or on Slack or something that maybe now his Scott Forstall's, uh, um, no, no talk clause has expired because right? this is the first interview in five years, right? Since he left the company. I don't even know what he's doing. I guess he's, you know, kicking back and, oh, and he's producing Broadway plays and stuff and scuba diving with his brother. Yeah. I mean, given where he was in the company and how privy he was to all of their plans for the future, it, it sort of made right. sense at the time that they, they kept him on as like, I don't know, special projects or special advisor or something. It was essentially like, you stay here under our control and don't talk to anybody. Um, mm-hmm. Read some newspapers in the lobby or something. I'm not really sure like how it works at that level, but it was essentially like, don't leave to a competitor like Google or Facebook. And it's been like, that's not uncommon. It's not, not typical, let's say, but it's not like uncommon to see that. What's sort of weird for me is he's been gone for so long out of the yeah, industry yeah. that it was very surprising to like see him come back after five years. And that's where I was speculating, oh, you know, they gave him a boatload of money to, you know, make it sort of fair for that transition. And in return, um, he just sort of does non-tech things. And it, it seems like if he's out there talking about this experience, then presumably that um, it's not like an, an NDA sort of thing. It's more like a separation agreement is probably over. Right, yeah, it seems like a yeah. nice, like a nice even, even though it's an odd number, it seems like a nice even number, like one year, two years or five years or anything. So, well, right. Let's see if he ends up uh, anywhere. I wouldn't be surprised if, if he ends up, you know, doing some other tech stuff in the near future. Yeah, they they, they asked the um, the engineers in the first part, what was it like uh, living with all the secrecy? And, and they they said this, and I think Marcus said this before, that at Apple, people who work there get it. They know they know what it's like to live in that culture and they're very respectful of each other. And I'm reading from this this uh, article. But um, they say that you, you develop a, a skill to basically talk about things without giving away too much detail, which I think we're, we're all we're all capable of doing here, right? So, um, yeah. So it was interesting. Uh, Mr. Fine said he didn't even see Pinch and Zoom until he was at the keynote. So that's how secretive things were, right? So, yeah, interesting wow. stuff. And uh, like uh, Scott, For- Scott Forstall said at one point in the talk, um, the first rule about purple is you don't talk about purple. <laughs> Any other thoughts on this? Yeah, I'll have to check it out. I haven't seen it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and plan, plan on it, putting two, well, at least one hour or so for each half. <laughs> and you can skip ahead too. I, I noticed today when, when uh, once you go back into Facebook, you can actually, you know, zoom ahead if you just want to watch the Forestall piece or what have you. And you can also download it and watch it in two times speed, I think, probably. All right. 
So, yeah. So I guess we'll move on to our picks. So, Hamid, do you have a pick or two or three? Yes. And the first one we'll have linked in the show notes is um, a blog posting that was recent from the, the CocoConf folks where, sadly, CocoConf is coming to an end. And they, they give their reasons why. That they had 40 events in 11 different cities, two mm. weddings, the arrival of two grandchildren, and their family school bus broke down. So they're retiring the CocoConf Touring Conference Series, uh, which is a bummer because, you know, I've, I've gone to CocoConf you know, several times here and I've always enjoyed um, the experience. Um, but lo and behold, they are starting a new conference called Swift by Northwest, where this will be a new event in Seattle. So that's that's great for me. <laughs> right? I'll just like walk out my door and, and, and go to it. Um, and it sounds like it'll be fairly similar to, to what CocoCon does. In this case, for this year, this is coming the 27th and 28th of October. So it's a two-year event. Uh, sorry, two-day event this year. And sounds like it will be very like similar in spirit to CocoCon, but but rather than being spread throughout the country, like Chicago and Indiana and San Jose and Portland, they're going to keep it closer to home, is what it sounds like. Hmm. So tickets are available now. Mm-hmm. I was going to say that's good because I think the I think I told them my story about getting into iPad development and iOS and you know looking around to find out how to find out about these things. And so I went to a couple of events, I think by Pearson, uh, Pearson Publishers, um, called Voices That Matter that were held in Seattle. So Seattle's a nice place to visit for those of you who are thinking it's too far away. But First two times I ever went to Seattle, the weather was beautiful and i was wondering to myself why why do people complain about the rain all the time it's great uh-huh. up here nothing wrong with it at all then the third time i found out why people complain about the rain all the time yeah you must have been there in <laughs> august or something vancouver is the same way vancouver is beautiful in in august and the rest of the time it's just gray right so yep. and wet and damp yep. and there's no breaks all right so what's your next pick there huh the next one is related to ar kit so we've talked about some of the mechanics behind you know using ar kit and what are some of the possibilities well if you want wanted to see more concretely some of those possibilities, there is a, what is this? Is this a Tumblr? Yeah, there's a Tumblr site called madewitharkit.com that is a hand-picked curation of the coolest stuff made with ARKit. So I think the one that I saw going around today was the parking a car on the iPhone, where they show like a real parking lot and then a virtual car um, being driven in some sort of way to, to, to park. There's some space-related ones. If you're a fan of LaCroix, the uh, sort of like seltzer, flavored seltzer water. There's one on there. I think of these ones, the one I liked the most was the one with the Overwatch Widowmaker character, mm-hmm. which is, uses uh, Apple AR kit plus Unity plus Overwatch uh, uh, Widowmaker test. And it shows that character, which is a very stylized sort of like cartoonish kind of character when, when you see the art style for the Overwatch game. But they show that character like in this person's room and it looks like reasonably convincing. You're like, holy smokes, this looks great. Like, look what you could do when you like really use these high quality assets and you, you set it up really nicely. So if you're looking for some inspiration or just some fun things to sort of look at and enjoy, I'd say check out this website. I am checking it out as we speak. Pretty cool. Yeah, yeah cool. All right. So my pick this week is going back to Coromel. Um, my friend uh, Matthias Holman has a blog site called machinethink.net and he posts uh, different stories. He's been sort of paralleling what Mark's been doing for the last you know year or so, looking at all the new uh, emerging um, uh, machine learning uh, tools. And you know he's written a couple of tutorials on on, uh, and a couple of articles on machine learning. I think we talked about him a couple of times on the show, some of his other articles. But this one, he's, he did a um, tutorial called YOLO. Um, YOLO is the, th- is the product or the network. So he's he's taken the same app that he built before using, I think, is, is this correct, Mark? MPSNN Graph? Yeah, that's the metal neural network. Oh, the metal, metal. Okay, right. So he, he built something using that in the past, and now Coromel has been released. He's using Coromel in this, da- in this 
this tutorial. Uh, Matthias, by the way, is, is the guy who wrote the iOS Apprentice book series on um, Ray Werner like years ago and has maintained it ever since. But so if you're looking for a tutorial on how to do this kind of thing, uh, he's basically built this uh, tutorial showing you how to use the core ML tools to convert the library into what you need and then drag and drop it into Xcode and build out the app and create the views and so on and so forth. So um, check it out. It's pretty cool. Have you scanned through it, Mark? I'm looking at it now. It looks pretty interesting. I'll have to read it in depth. I haven't worked with the metal neural network stuff at all. Uh, that might be something for me to do. But uh, he also compares it against the BNNS version, which is the Accelerate version. Right. The difference being that the, the Accelerate one runs on the CPU, whereas the metal one runs on the GPU. So in theory, the uh, the GPU version ought to be much faster, both much more powerful, stronger, larger networks. So the BNS is the first half of the tutorial, or is that from a previous one? Uh, let me see. I I saw that as I was scanning through. Mm-hmm. Let me see. But I might have made that up. Anyway, he just posted this this afternoon, so which is why we're we're just mm-hmm. looking at the article now ourselves. Yep. Yeah. yeah, I'm reading up on the conclusion here around yeah. some of the differences between using the core ML versus the MPS and then graph. So one, it says like speed differences shouldn't really matter. Uh, as a practical matter, the beta one core ML is slower, but it's kind of predicting that's because it is beta one and early betas are not quite as performance tuned yet. Uh, but that the biggest difference between the two APIs is ease of use where CoreML, it's super easy to get up and running and MPS and NGraph takes more effort. But that sort of the, the trade-off in that magic side of CoreML is you don't get as much control over what happens uh, where MPS and NGraph maybe gives it a little bit more control, but apparently not that much more. So it, it, it might take a little bit more of investigation as to like, you know, if somebody asked you the question what should we use here? I'm like, hmm, maybe it kind of depends on what we're trying to do. I'd be curious right. to see some follow-up on uh, more distinctly understanding the, the trade-offs you make between choosing one over the other. Mm-hmm. Interesting stuff. I lost my pick. Mm-hmm. And that's it for another week, I guess. So, hey, Hummy, if people want to find you on the interwebs, where would they look? I'm on Twitter as at Dev with a hair. Mark, if people want to get in touch with you. By email, markr at smapsoft.com or at, uh, what is it? At smapsoft. Twitter, <laughs> yeah, something like that. Smapsoft two Ps, yeah. <laughs> right? Yep, yep. Yeah, okay. So once again, as I said at the top of the show, I am Tim Mitra, T-I-M-M-I-T-R-A on the Twitter machine, and that's the best way to get a hold of me. And until next week, we'll see you later. Bye. This has been another episode of the More Than Just Code podcast. I am friend of the show, Evan Deckazer, making my podcasting debut. If you want to find out more about the show, you can visit the More Than Just Code website at mtjc.fm. There, you'll find a summary and show notes of each episode. We list links to the items that we talk about on the show, picks for the episode, as well as links to the apps on the App Store. If you like the podcast, please leave a comment on the website and write a review on iTunes. If you're listening on Overcast, go ahead and press the recommend button. It really helps others find out about the show. You can also follow the show on Twitter and Facebook. The podcast Twitter handle is at MTJC underscore podcast. You can also support the show by pledging any amount on patreon.com slash MTJC. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. caught up in that and my i came i took the dog out for a walk and i came back my ipad this ipad pro i'm telling you it's like got a problem with gravity because it has taken a nosedive three or four times in the last week it survived it's in a silicon case right the apple mm-hmm. one mm-hmm.
But like, I'm telling you, like, it's so unwieldy. It's worse than the iPhone 6 Plus. <laughs> <laughs> Are you going to get yourself a, a new one then? A new 12.9 with all the no, fancy promotion no. and everything on it? No. I mean, I like it for the size, but I'm not really into it for all that other stuff. We have um, we have the 9.7 as well. So, mm-hmm. But the promo- promotion is only in the, new- the newer models, right? Yeah, that's what I was saying. If you were going to trade in your old 12.9 Pro for the new 12.9 Pro. Right, right. Yeah, it's a lot of money. And by the time I think I, by the time I bought it and then put the Apple silicone case on it and then bought the Apple pencil and I think I bought Apple Care for it too. I think um, you're up to two grand Canadian. So right. it adds up. But if you sell, it, if you sell the current one, um, let's see, you'll already have the Apple pencil and that didn't change. Um, I don't know about Apple Care whether you can move that over or not. Um, you can't, no. Uh, but you'll have financed part of the cost just by reselling the Pro that you have now. Yeah. I mean, I tend to do that, but but then like if the case doesn't fit, and then I, I like so the case was right. pretty sure it was close to like two hundred and fifty dollars by the time you added both the top and the and the outside part together. Yeah, you know, in Can- Canadian dollars, so it's like fifty cents American, but still. <laughs> you know. Yeah, and I don't know if they're compatible or not. I didn't check into that since yeah, Apple yeah. was sort of weirdly like it didn't promote the fact that it had the new twelve point nine all that much. A lot of their attention was on the right, ten point right. five. Yeah, and they would they got a new sleeve or something for that, right? Yeah. And that makes sense because the 10.5 is physically different than the 9.7. That makes sense. But I'm not sure if the same is true of the 12.9 ones. Like I've not seen a side-by-side comparison. Yeah. Sorry. I'm saying, yeah, I've got my finger on the mute button. (laughs) (laughs) You have to time your yeahs while lifting your hand. I'm sure you probably do that too, right? (laughs) Yeah. And then the the microphone app that I'm using, I actually switched to a different one. I don't recall the name now. What is it? Push push mic controller. Well, I tried using this other one because Shush was what, like Snow Leopard or something. And I think I switched oh, really? to this before I um, before I ended up deciding to buy the new microphone when I was still trying things out to see what the heck was going on. I thought, well, maybe it has something to do with Shush not being compatible with like some update of Sierra or something. But I tried yeah, this, no, this other microphone Sierra one here. and it, oh. um, it works fine. It, it works a little differently in that I don't hear like a little sound on my side when it switches off of mute and, and vice versa. Instead, I have to keep watch of this little icon that turns red or turns black when I take my finger off the hotkey right right yeah when you guys were talking there at the end of roundabout i had mm-hmm. I, I switch it when i want to do something and i don't want to have to hold the keyboard down i switch it to push to talk you know mm-hmm. but um yeah it's funny now i just i was just about to say oh it's totally compatible with, with uh with sierra and then i opened um and i opened it to get the preferences to or, or get the, the about screen and now i've got two icons in the menu bar for sure <laughs> <laughs> totally compatible <laughs> nothing wrong with it and yeah, I, I can I can control it from both of the icons too, which is really weird. Mark is there. Yeah, it Mark. looks like Mark joined the line. Yeah, I'm here. Yeah. How does it sound, by the way? You sound tinny. Who yeah. are you? Yeah, you sound different than before. I'm still in my car. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> are you calling us through the car system right now? I answer, yeah. You called me actually. It rang in my car. Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's okay. It's, are you on the road or what? It works. Yeah, yeah. I'm realistically, a good uh, ten to fifteen minutes out still. This was right. the worst day since I started work at this place this is the worst day for traffic i've seen i left the office at six o'clock same as i always do and there was one more than usual little yellow warning on my navigation system on the route home <laughs> and here i am an hour in and i'm still not home yet well please. don't move to the bay area Main topic-wise, I think the the Google one about their object recognition stuff being very similar to CoreML is 
not going to take that long. Um, but if you, either one of you guys has heard anything more about or discovered more about any of those related topics, maybe we can well, see which ones time. about the like core ML or the vision framework or anything even vaguely related to sort of the, the link I have here, which is just that, oh, by the way, just the way that, that Apple made its um, machine learning um, pre-trained models available, Google has done the same for TensorFlow. Mm -hmm. So it's more of an excuse to talk more about the machine learning and, and other stuff. Well, I think that I thought that TensorFlow was one of the things that you talked about at WWDC that we could use, right? Like it's not locked down to just Google. I don't think I understand the, the question. Did they mention TensorFlow other than a, like as a they competitor? Did, yeah. Like it's not as if, did, yeah. per my understanding, I don't oh, think sorry. the models <laughs> are compatible. Like, um, uh, no, I mean, so, so this, uh, tool, um, Core ML tools. Mm -hmm. It's a Python script that you basically you you bring you bring down the model and then you run it through this Python script and it converts it into a core, core ML model. Right, right. So you can so you can pick and choose from any number of open source um, models that are already you know you, you're not going to do any learning on your phone. It's the bottom line. You're gonna ha you're gonna get a model from somewhere else, or you're gonna build a model and teach it somehow offline, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Not on a device, right? Right. TensorFlow is a uh, web-based, or not necessarily web-based, but I think it's mostly web-based set of libraries that Google makes available for doing machine learning. Uh, and it has its own set of formats. So if you've built a model in TensorFlow, uh, then yes, using those Python tools, you can import that model and convert it to the core ML format. Right. I think that's what you're talking about, too. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, really? So I was, I was not aware that there was any cross-compatibility. I mean, it didn't seem unreasonable. I assume the structure would be very similar because a lot of the concepts are similar, but I wasn't sure if it was like, I mean, there's no like PDF sort of version. We're like, oh yeah, everything, you know, understands PDF. It, it, I thought it was more like, this thing is like, you know, Word docs in like 1997. And this other thing is like Lotus Notes doc in 1997. Right. And Apple has just provided a converter to go between them. They're not the same formats, but you can convert one format to the other format. Ooh, okay. So that'll be good to bring up on the, that'll be good to bring up on the show then. Cause I was not aware of that. I think we just did. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely after show fodder. <laughs> oh, with USB with with Alex, my conversation with Alex mm -hmm. about the fact that my uh, one of my USB ports at USB C ports is already flaky on my Mac. Really? Like, like yeah. I, I just it just it, it bodes really well because I can just sort of see if you don't have Apple Care and your and your ports go on your Mac, you have you, there's nothing you can do, right? So one of them that I, I normally use for, and I mean like. Uh, DisplayPort was, or the, the DisplayPort style, which is what Thunderbolt 2 and 1 are, right? Um, it's a pretty solid connection, but I find USB-C really thin, and, and it looks like it's it'd be prone to, to damage or misadventure, right? So, And now I, I think I mentioned um, a couple of weeks ago that um, the FireWire, the original FireWire 400, had sort of a, a squarish, um, like it looked, looked like a home plate upside down, right? Um, but the center, the, what, what came onto the logic board was like there was the pins were on a little piece of plastic in the middle, right? And if you, over time, plugging and unplugging and plugging and unplugging, that would that plastic would start to break, and then then you'd have no way of connecting the the, the port. We had to buy like third party cards and put them into our our old you know cheese grater Mac Pros. So because we used the like we use those ports every day, right? So like plugging and unplugging that is right. So your USB C ports just have to hold out long enough until we have wireless development. Well, this is yeah. I mean, <laughs> well, so in in our case. We have the dongle. Maybe that's why they did it. <laughs> well, exactly. But we have the dongle for Ethernet. You know, then you got your power brick goes in one, and then you've got like 
your USB for VGA if you have a second monitor or something like that, right? So I don't know that, you know, USB-C, I don't know how old is USB-C. I mean, has it really been, has it really been through the 10,000 hours of testing, right? You know, I suppose, I guess it has in terms of the manufacturing facilities, but but not with people using them, right? Probably not. Yeah, I, I could see if they have like the equivalent of those rolling machines that do stuff for mattresses to see what their life is like, yeah. but then yeah. it's not the same as having a person on. and grease on your hands and Cheeto dust yeah. and all these other things yeah. that might hurt the lifetime. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah so okay, I'm home. I'm gonna switch over. All right, I'll call you up. Okay. okay. <laughs> Yeah. Mm-hmm. How was the after show? So we, so we can, well, we've kind of talked about Alex's thing, so I guess we'll link him in, right? That was my discussion with Alex about the USB-C ports on my Mac. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, Alex, and he's 10 kettles, I believe. Was that on the MTJC or you just saw it on the, on the, the I think I started that conversation on MTJC, right? I see. Yeah, hashtag leak, sorry, Leaky MTJC. Wellington. Yeah. So 10 kettles is the name of his company, and I think uh, Leaky Wellington is his Twitter handle. Mm, uh, yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. And then he was saying that it's disappointing that lightning cables tend to Fry, fray around the end, and uh, I've noticed that too. And it has to—I think it has to do with the heat of the the charging, you know. Because uh, I've also found that I have a USB-C stick, like a flash drive, a thumb drive that I plug mm-hmm. into my Mac occasionally with a, on the dongle. The as I, I have a VGA dongle with a USB or USB two port in it, right? No, two is it two or three? I guess. But it gets super hot, so I don't know what what the deal is with all the heat heat loss on these uh, these devices, right? Yeah, I also think it has something to do with these. Like these little sleeves that they have that connect to the different parts of the of the wire. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, they look nice, but I mean, you sort of need that Soviet style of design where you have those cords yeah. where it's kind of like Bulk. a like a crinkled yeah. accordion. Like those never tear and break. Right. They never fray. They look terrible, but by golly, right, they right. function really well. You mean the ones where they got like a braided sleeve over top of them? Um, I'm trying to think of what exactly it looks like. So I don't think I've ever seen the equivalent on a like a phone USB or lightning cable but if you think of like the the end that goes um okay so like if you think about the the power brick for the macbook pro yeah and the part that sort of comes out of the you know that that has the wire connecting into the um yeah it's got like a rubber rubber cap on it yeah yeah and it's got that little weird like sleeve on it that looks great but that stuff tends to fray because it bends and doesn't bend back very easily whereas those electric cables that you'll see that have i mean they look really crazy and thick on the end that goes into the wall socket has got sort of right. that, like that very thick accordion sort of style. Like that's probably more functional in terms of being able to survive the abuse of being wrapped around many, many times. And these ones that look nicer don't, don't seem to last quite as well. Yeah. You know, and it's one thing I've noticed about these, like, cause I, I deal with a lot of people who have these and especially on the older power bricks. Um, now the new ones have USB, so they don't USB C. So it's just like a USB C port on them. But um, the old ones, people tended to put a lot of pressure or a lot of stress on the, as it came out of the, thing when they were wrapping up the cable, mm-hmm. you know, to, to sort of cable manage it when they were putting it in their, in their bags or whatever. Yeah. And if you put, I think, I think just too much kinking and I'm, I'm actually looking at this one I've got for my, um, I got a replacement one for my, um, 45 watt one, but it's got a super strong, um, the little rubber thing you were talking about there, the little, I don't know what the technical name for that is, cable sleeve. I don't know, but uh, mm-hmm. this one's super strong. But it, so what I've done with my cables around the house is is sometimes I'll put heat shrink tubing on them. You know what that is, right? To and put like a three or four pieces of it on there to sort of give it like a like a like a cast, like you broke your arm kind of thing, right? Um, and that gives the cable maybe another three or four months worth of life. And I've also three D printed um, little sleeves that pop onto the end of the cables to keep them from from bending too much, right? So. Oh. 
Oh, interesting. That my, yeah, my success. I'll, I'll have to post a picture of that. But my success with those is, you know, I, I don't think I've gotten a full cable's life worth of uh, repair out of it, right? So, yeah, I, I actually just bought a brand new cable the other day because I'm running out of lightning cables. So, weirdness. Matthias was joking with us on on, uh, on the Slack, and I don't know if he was kidding or not, but he he was saying that the uh, the phone gets really hot when you try and do machine learning on it, like the actual learning. Yeah, that that makes sense. If it's <laughs> dumping stuff onto the GPU, it wouldn't be any different than if you played like a 3D mobile game. Right, right. Oh, does that get the the device hot too? I've noticed that if you play, um, oh, I don't even know what pushes it anymore, but I remember the oh, what is it called? It's like a sword fighting game. It was like one of the early ones on the iPad that looked really good. It was like... Oh, Bane's Blade or something like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. If you played that one for a while, you could tell that it would make the iPad get kind of hot. And your phone, too, when they ported it over there. Right, yeah, yeah. Hmm, interesting. Let's see how the voice holds out here since we also had the recording on uh, Roundabout earlier. Oh, how'd that go? Yeah. Uh, I don't he, know. he wears boxers. Mine, it seems like it went well. What? Good. He wears boxers. Okay. <laughs> yes, that, that came up as, as a topic. To <laughs> but what's your least favorite word? <laughs> <laughs> My least favorite word came out as sigh, like when people literally say the word sigh, sigh when you're sighing. Not writing it down, which is importantly different because it's a different medium altogether. You can't make a guttural sound on a tweet. Hmm. Yeah, and I and I explained to Jaime after he said that that I'm one of those people who does that. So, and oh well. Said, then you said sigh. Yeah, I did actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was inspired by my cousin who used to say that when he was like eight. <laughs>